0: beginning you know this part god created the heavens and the earth okay that's that's how the old testament starts because that's how everything started right that's what we believe as christians god makes adam and eve the, the first man and woman as the crown of his creation in order to be his image bearers but 3 chapters in it goes bad right like kevin dropping his pot of chili bad Okay, like irreparably bad. Adam and Eve are given tons of amazing freedom uh, and and one very simple rule to follow. And at that point, they were tempted by God's enemy, Satan, who had taken the form of a serpent. Okay, Uh, just like if a serpent talks to you, don't. Just run, okay? So, anyway, like, taking the form of a serpent, he lies to them and says that if they break the rule that God had given them, they will become like God. And so they decide to listen to him and disobey God by breaking the rule. And this is where the entrance of human sin comes into the world. The relationship between God and man is fractured, and the universe itself spirals into this pattern of brokenness where nothing uh, works quite like it was designed to. Sickness, death, relational strife, war. None of that was God's original design, but it comes as a result of sin. But in Genesis chapter 3, Though Adam and Eve had to leave the garden where they had perfect communion with God, God makes the first gospel promise to fix all that has been broken and to crush Satan for this mess that he has instigated. Well, uh, the story continues. And as it turns out, human sin is hereditary. Okay? So what we pass it along through the generations. You notice that with your kids? You discipline. It's like, wait, you're... Wait. Wait. I do that, right? Okay, so anyway, we see that through the entire story of Scripture. After a few generations, it gets so bad that God decides to start over, and that's where Noah and the flood comes in. Noah's a man of faith, and so he obeys God's instruction to build an ark and save his family for the preservation of humanity. But sadly, Noah is still a sinner, and his kids are sinners, right? And so eventually, the world becomes a corrupt place again. <clears throat> and this time, all the people come together to build, uh, to, sorry, to, in order to try to uh, be like God again by building this tower to the heavens. That's the Tower of Babel. You follow me? You've heard these big stories in the Bible, right? Okay, so naturally, God doesn't like that, okay? Uh, not that they could have ever accomplished it. It's kind of stupid, but it was a heart problem. Okay, so he ends their little atheistic building project but by dividing up all of their languages. And in time, humanity spreads out across the earth. And this is where we meet Abraham. Abraham, okay? At this point, God reveals that the way he's going to initiate the redemption of his people is going to be through one family. Abraham's family. Abraham, uh, too, is a man of faith, and so God makes a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations and to bless the whole world through him, but that doesn't happen right away. Okay, Uh, Abraham becomes the first, what is referred to as a patriarch, and he has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob, who God renames what? Israel. Good job. Okay, so long story short, Jacob, the third patriarch, has 12 sons, and he favors one of them. Uh, By the way, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. That's not good. You see this here. So uh, he favors one of his sons more than the others whose name is Joseph, and so out of jealousy, 10 of the others sell Joseph into slavery, right, in Egypt. Uh, But in the course of time, by God's grace, this is way abbreviated, he becomes second in command in Egypt underneath Pharaoh, okay? So by God's providence, he finds out, Joseph finds out his family is enduring this famine, and so he, he moves all of them over to Egypt, forgives his brothers, and they all live happily ever after, okay? Until, until a new Pharaoh comes along after a generation who didn't know Joseph and who, who feels threatened by Joseph's growing family that has really grown into a nation, the nation of Israel. So, uh, Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites, and they are enslaved for 400 years, at which point Moses comes onto the scene, okay? Who, as you know, if you've seen, uh, Prince of Egypt delivers Israel with uh, God's help by parting the Red Sea, right? This is the exodus, Right, God is leading his people uh, through Moses to the land that he promises to give to Abraham and, and his family a, a while back in, in Genesis. Well, uh, maybe you know, this does not go as well as one would expect. Okay, This doesn't go as well as one would expect. Rather than trust God, because of all that he had miraculously done to rescue them from slavery in Egypt... Israel starts grumbling and complaining and worshiping idols immediately, immediately. And maybe you're starting to see kind of a cycle here, like with Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, God saves his people, and so they, they recommit to him, but quickly they fall away from their commitment And they get themselves into these self inflicted predicaments where they they cry out to God and they need to be saved again. Okay? This is a cycle. You see this over and over and over in the Bible, this redemptive cycle, all right? Um, And and maybe if you pay attention to your own life with a biblical lens, maybe you see that in yourself too. I know I see it in in my own life, right? Anyway, eventually, after 40 years, God's people make it to the promised land, yay, Uh, with God's help. But their pattern of of half-hearted commitment to him continues, and they're quickly engulfed in the pagan idolatry of the other people who inhabit the land around them. And as a result, they begin demanding what? A king. They begin demanding a king, because they suppose that if they have a human king, like the nations around them, it will give them status and safety and so forth, right? The problem with that is, as Samuel, the priest, tells them, he says, you don't need a king. You don't need a king. God is your king. He's the one who gives you status and safety and provision like he literally has all along. This is Samuel's appeal to the people, to which the people basically say, shut up, Samuel, and give us what we want, right? That's my paraphrase, but that's pretty much what they say. <laughs> and God tells Samuel, don't take it so hard, man. Don't take it so hard. It's, it's not you they won't listen to. It's me. It's always been me. That's been the trend from the beginning. You know that. And so Israel installs a human, a, a human king. And the first one, Saul, is this awful. Okay? He's awful. He's tall. And strong and kingly in appearance, but he is cowardly and self-promoting. I think God allows that in order to prove a point. But then he brings in a new king, King David, right? You know about him. And David is a man after God's own heart who builds the kingdom of Israel up and he he leads them to begin honoring God. But sadly, just like Noah and Abraham and Moses, who are all great men of faith, they're still just men and they're all sinful. And David, godly, as he may have been, commits some terrible sin, some terrible sin. And the end of his kingship is a somber one. He's followed up by his son Solomon, who shows a lot of promise by his commitment to the Lord, who builds the first temple, but eventually who ends up more sinful than his dad. Okay? And because of this sinful trend of the kings to that point, after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel splits. Okay? It splits. It splits. And two, the north and the south, Israel and Judah, respectively. And from there, it just gets worse and worse, okay? Both kingdoms are led into more and more pagan idolatry. God sends prophets to them to warn them of the consequences of their sin, but they press on, right? Until eventually, God punishes them. God punishes them by allowing other regional superpowers around them to defeat them and ultimately lead them away into exile. The first one was the Assyrian Empire. And so you see, at at that time... These kind of Middle Eastern empires would just be on these constant conquests okay? in order to become the, the biggest and the, and the strongest. And so they would overtake a nation like Israel and then they would seek to erode the cohesion of their society in order to consolidate power and have sovereignty over them. All right? And so they did that by enslaving the most reputable and high-ranking people in that particular nation, the kings, the priests, the rich. Okay? They would take their land, and then they would destroy their religious practices, which would inevitably mean the destruction of their culture altogether. All right? So Assyria swallows up the northern kingdom of Israel, but then a bigger and stronger nation comes along, Babylon, and they do the same thing to Assyria. As well as the southern kingdom, Judah. And finally, Babylon is swallowed up by Persia. Okay? And so all of Israel is in captivity to Persia. Just pause here. Can you even imagine this? Can you even imagine this? Literally everything you know, everything you know, gone. Because your nation was taken over by a larger and more powerful nation who takes you away into their land in order to enslave you. And not only that, but it happens as a result of your sin. Your sin and the sin of the rest of your nation. And you were warned by God to repent many times, but ultimately you wouldn't. And so now you're reaping the consequences of generation after generation of of disobedience to God. This was an incredibly dark and difficult time for the people of God in which they had to be wondering, okay, they had to be wondering, where do we even go from here? Is there any hope for our redemption and restoration? God promised us a land and that's gone. He gave us a law to keep and we blew that. He promised us a king on the throne of David to keep us safe and focus on him. And obviously that's not the current reality here in Persia, right? And this is where Nehemiah comes in. It's where Nehemiah comes in, okay? The Old Testament books of Ezra, and Nehemiah were actually originally one book. They were split uh, into two over the course of time, and they are the final line of narrative in the Old Testament. Historically speaking, the end of Nehemiah is the end of the Old Testament, okay? Uh, even though the actual placement of Nehemiah in our Old Testament, of our English Bible, is kind of, it's kind of in the middle, okay? But anyway, what happens is, Amazingly, after 70 years in exile, the Persian king Cyrus determines that he is going to allow many of the exiles to return home. Just like that. right? And not only that, he writes a decree to fund the rebuilding of their temple. This is incredible. This gives real meaning to Proverbs 21.1 that says, The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Right? So God is in control. Just stop on that for a second. God is in control. His plans are not at the mercy of the events of history. Okay? He is the one steering the course of history. All right? I know there just continues to be a lot of scary and disheartening stuff in the news these days, but Let the context for the book of Nehemiah give you peace. God is not asleep at the wheel. He knows exactly what is happening, and He alone knows the secret of why and how each and every event is leading perfectly to His intentional and glorious conclusion when the perfect King, King Jesus, is revealed for all to see. Okay, that's good news, right? But anyway, back to Nehemiah. So the people of Israel are released from their exile in three waves. That's how D.A. Carson explains it. The first wave is led by a man named Zerubbabel. Okay? He leads the, re- the rebuilding of the temple. The second wave is led by Ezra, who reinstates the law in Jerusalem and thus begins rebuilding the culture of God's people. And the third wave is led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of the city walls. And so that said, let me give a quick clarification here at the start about what this book is not, okay? Because of the nature of Nehemiah's memoir, okay, many have utilized it for some purposes that, that I think are less than appropriate, all right? We're going to see as we read that Nehemiah shows himself to be a great leader, but the book of Nehemiah is not merely a biblical course on leadership, Okay. We're also going to see that the primary thing Nehemiah leads practically is a building project. Okay? But the book of Nehemiah is not merely in the canon of Scripture for churches to use as a primer for a capital campaign or to motivate people to build up their building even bigger. Okay? It has been used for that. Just, to me, I don't know, it seems a little sketchy. But anyway, also we're going to see that, as I've said, Nehemiah sets out to build a wall. And yet, this text is not merely the political justification for border walls, okay? The book of Nehemiah, when we read it through a gospel lens, is an amazing testament to God's relentless and unstoppable plan to redeem his people out of all their trouble, despite the fact that the majority of it is self-inflicted, right? And the book of Nehemiah is about God's people re-centering their lives on his kingdom, following a a challenging season in a changed world. Okay, Now, in just a minute, I'm actually going to read the first four verses of chapter 1, but it's important first that you actually know who Nehemiah is. That's the one thing we haven't said yet, which is revealed in verse 11 of the first chapter. Nehemiah, we find out, as an aside, is the cupbearer to the Persian king which in most uh, basic sense, this, this means he would taste the king's food before the king so that no one could poison the king, okay? Sounds kind of like a scary job. And this, this may sound kind of like a lowly position at first, but most scholars believe this was actually an extremely powerful position. The reasoning is the king would only want a cupbearer, this is logical, who he could really trust, Right? You've got a guy tasting your food for you to make sure you don't get poisoned. You want to trust that guy, right? Okay. And actually, uh, he would want someone who was able to make sure uh, that he would be safe. And so uh, it's likely that Nehemiah held a high government office that gave him significant authority within the king's circle, most specifically within the king's residence where anyone might try. If anyone's going to try to harm him, that's where they would try to do it. And so Nehemiah likely oversaw all of the comings and goings within the king's palace, from servants to cooks to security detail and so forth, okay? So now that you have that information, let's read the first four verses of Nehemiah. It took a lot to get there, didn't it? That's understanding the Bible. All right. Nehemiah 1 verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, Nehemiah is serving the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, in the 20th year of his reign. And the month of Chislev would have been in the fall, probably November, December time frame. And the return of the exiles had already begun, but we find out um, later in the book that this has not been an easy transition, Okay, as though nothing had happened. You have to understand, Jerusalem had been raised to the ground Okay, when they were defeated. And so it probably looks and feels a lot like a war zone back home. Not to mention, there are people in those lands who don't want Israel back in any kind of power. Okay, So Nehemiah says that a man named Hanani comes to visit a fellow Jew, and when Nehemiah asks for, asks for a report of how the recovery effort is going, the report is not good. It's not good. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah They actually run parallel in some degree. And so if you read in Ezra chapter 4, what you're going to find out is that there had been some political maneuvering to stop the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. There had been a transition of kings from Cyrus, who first began to let the exiles leave, to Artaxerxes. And some opposers of the project had advised Artaxerxes to prevent it from continuing because they said If the Jews succeeded in rebuilding, eventually they would no longer submit to him, okay? And so we read in Ezra chapter 4 that the project is halted by force, okay? This is probably the breaking down of the walls and the fire and and all of that. That's mostly, uh, most likely where the context of this beginning uh, four verses of Nehemiah happens, okay? So the first four verses of Nehemiah are really the setup for the rest of the book. God in his kindness is allowing his people to escape a terribly dark and broken season. But the reality that they are going to find is that even in their newfound freedom, there will be a great deal of challenge to face if they want to rebuild and move forward. And so I have two overarching points this morning that flow from the context that Nehemiah is set in and that are going to play out, I think we'll see, as we read through Nehemiah. The first one is this, if you're following along. God sovereignly allows his people to experience prolonged seasons of hardship for the sake of purifying them from sin and renewing their commitment to him. As I already mentioned, we see this principle play out time and again as we read through the story of the Bible. But this can be hard for us to grapple with, can it? This can be hard to grapple with because we, guys, we're living in a time and a place in history where we are the beneficiaries of the most freedom and comfort that has ever been available to the common man. Right? We are averse to suffering as Americans in the sense that we, we really work hard to insulate ourselves from pain and from struggle, don't we? Think about how much of our lives are about preserving safety and comfort, right? It's a lot. In a nutshell, we want to try, most of us Instinctively, want to try to make sure that no matter what happens, we're good, right? We're good. We're good, right? There's this thing I've noticed. young boys in our culture do, since I've had a couple myself and been around a lot more of them with families like ours. Maybe you've witnessed this too. I'll greet a six- to 10-year-old boy. Coming into my house or coming up to the church or whatever, you know, and I'll be like, hey, what's up, man? And very monotone, he will reply to me, good, <laughs> just good, right? Have you seen that? Like it happens a lot. Usually, like, usually if his parents are there, I'll kind of look at them and we'll just kind of like we just did, like kind of like shrug and like chuckle, you know? <laughs> like well, one of my nephews used to do this. And I thought maybe it was an isolated occurrence, where he was anticipating me to say, How are you doing? And then I said, Hey, what's up? And he would reply, Good. Uh, but but then I started noticing other boys doing it too. And so, you know, I just can't help but wonder if this is a learned behavior that they pick up from observing everyday cultural interactions, right? Think about it. We are conditioned to say that we're doing well, aren't we? We're conditioned to say we're doing well. I knew a guy a few years ago who served on our hospitality team, and he told me that When he greeted people, he would always intentionally say, "It's good to see you. It's good to see you," which is great, right? It's a great thing to say. Like we always want to be reminding people that they are welcome and they're valued at Mosaic's gatherings. If if you're visiting with us today, we're we're so glad you're here. It's good to see you here, right? But he said he used to say, "How are you doing?" He used to say how are you doing as a greeting and he stopped because he realized man I'm not genuine in asking that question <laughs> like what if someone actually stopped and told me how they were doing but also he said no one ever really does no one ever really does it's just polite to say hey how you doing and for the person to say what? Good, thanks, or can't complain, or just live in the dream, right? It would be culturally weird to ask someone how they're doing and them to respond, not great, not great. My marriage feels like it's falling apart. My family life is super unhealthy. Or, man, it was a bad week. Can't stop getting drunk. Or I keep overeating. Or I can't stop looking at pornography. Or I can't stop spending money that I don't have to medicate the fact that I'm unhappy with my life and it's a really hard season for me. But... I'm certain that a lot, if a lot of us answered the question, how are you doing, truthfully, those might actually be some of our responses. Right? But look at the interaction between Hananiah and Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, how's it going? Hananiah says, really not good. Terrible, actually. And Nehemiah responds with an appropriate emotional and spiritual response, weeping and prayer. I don't know about all of your situations, but I know some of them. I know some of them. And I know what you're going through is incredibly, incredibly hard. The loss of a loved one, painful medical ailment, miscarriage, marital strife, sins that seem to keep getting the upper hand in your life, no matter how many times you keep trying to put them to death. I also know, while we haven't been through an actual exile, we've been through a couple years that, let's just say it like it is, okay, really messed us up. We're messed up, aren't we, from this whole pandemic thing. The mental and emotional effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly the part where we were all under partial lockdown, have not been good. And the studies aren't even conclusive yet. They're only beginning to be done. Years of isolation, fear, anxiety, frustration, in a world characterized by global tensions, political division, record inflation, and resource scarcity with no end in sight. Most of us, if we were honest, feel like we are in a season of prolonged hardship. And I want to be careful how I say this, because I don't, want to be, I don't want to be like the pastor at the beginning of the pandemic who had to put his foot in his mouth because he publicly prophesied that COVID was God's judgment on homosexuality, right? And then he got COVID. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Yeah, think about that for a second. Okay. But generally speaking, God sovereignly allows his people to experience prolonged seasons of hardship for the sake of purifying them from sin and renewing their commitment to him. What I'm saying to you is that suffering and difficulty in life are never meaningless. They're never meaningless. As much as we try to avoid them, Suffering and difficulty are often the tools that God uses in our lives to remind us of our need for Him. I'm not saying okay, that the pandemic has been a specific judgment for the sin of the church, but I am saying the Lord has a way of using events like this to shake us up and reveal how our hearts have sinfully drifted away from Him. To strip away all of the facades that we build up in an attempt to prove to ourselves and to others that we're we're good. We're, We're good. And so that we have to stop and examine the true state of our lives and confess that, in some ways, perhaps spiritually, we're really not doing so good. We're really not doing so good. If we're honest, maybe we're just barely hanging on. Maybe we come to church and we smile and shake hands and we mouth the words to the songs, pretending that all is well. But inside, we're tired and we're broken and we're spiritually parched and we know, we know If we're honest, in a lot of ways, it's probably our own fault for how we've neglected the Lord. How we've abandoned prayer and a life of reliance on his word. How we've rejected the opportunity to allow others to actually know us in community. And how we've forsaken God for idols. The idol of materialism just accumulating more and more stuff that instead of filling us up actually leaves us feeling like we need more and more to be content. Or the idol of pleasure, overindulging in, in good things like food or alcohol or some form of entertainment like video games or, or Netflix series or maybe indulging in some kind of secret sin, some secret sexual sin that promises us, promises us affirmation but leaves us feeling empty and, and sick? Or the idol of power, prominence. Maybe, alcohol, maybe alcoholism is not your thing, but workaholism is because you want to be seen as successful and important. Or you want to be in charge. Or maybe you love gossip. Maybe you love gossip and feeling like you're on an inner circle with secret knowledge about other people that you can selectively reveal in order to pridefully boost your ego and your sense of importance. Or maybe you've completely tied up. And I know this is hard to admit. So I don't know if you can admit it if this is you. But maybe you've completely tied up your identity and your worth and something really good other than Christ. Like the perfect family, whatever that looks like to you, that you just want to have so desperately to the point that you have actually neglected the sovereign designer of family himself, who's more concerned with us expanding his eternal family than attempting to perfect our Temporal one. Guys, as concerned as we are with appearing externally good and seeming to have it all together, God has a different agenda for our lives. He has a different agenda for our lives, for us to be made internally holy and focused on him. The Apostle Paul says this so succinctly in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. (laughs) I love that. It's the same reason I spank my kids. You know that? The other day our family was walking to a parking lot and Abel, who's becoming more independent, he's growing up, he, he pulled his hand away from mine because he wanted to show that he could walk without me. He pulled himself right into the car lane in the parking lot, of course. And there wasn't one close, but there was one further down the lane. And so I snatched his hand and pulled him next to me and I popped his bottom one time. And he told me, was mean. You're mean, Dad. So I asked him if it was mean of me to protect him from getting flattened like a pancake by someone driving their car, not paying attention to him. He didn't answer. He knew. (laughs) He knew that's not mean. So friends, the grace of God Offered to us in the gospel is not something we need one time at conversion. It's something we continue to need every single day. And if we start to wander away from God, away from Christ, like any good father, he will snatch us up to discipline us, not because he is mean, but because he is gracious. He is gracious, he loves us, and he refuses to allow us to be condemned along with the world. In 2 Chronicles 33, we see a brief isolated occurrence of this principle with Manasseh, the king of Judah, shortly shortly before they enter into exile here. and So let me read that to you. 2 Chronicles 33, 10-13, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. Is it up here? But what happened? They paid no attention. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Get this. And when he was in distress he entreated, that is, he begged for the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and what happens? God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, God's agenda is not for us to be good Sunday morning fakers who look nice in a church service, but whose internal lives are a wreck. His desire is for us to be made internally holy and focused on Him and to experience the the true joy that results from staying close to Him. Listen. Listen. And if it takes laying us bare, if it takes laying us bare through a prolonged season of hardship for us to come to Him desperately, fully acknowledging and repenting of our sin, He has no problem. He has no problem allowing us to experience pain and difficulty for our ultimate good and for our full recognition that apart from a vibrant relationship with him, we can't be good. We can't be good without him. This was the story of Israel in the time of their kings. It's why they wound up in exile in the first place. And the book of Nehemiah is largely about God's people coming out of a season of prolonged hardship and entering into a season of purification from their sin and renewing their commitment to God with Nehemiah as one of their main leaders. And my hope is that we'll be able to grow as the body of Christ from studying this process in the days ahead. And listen, I know I know these are not easy days to be living in. I know these are not easy days to be living in. For a lot of us, it's really hard right now, right? And that putting the book of Nehemiah forward for us to interpret and apply, it's not going to be easy. So if you want like an easy, fun, like happy, clappy sermon series, like you can, I won't name the church. You can go down the road to somewhere that'll preach that, okay? I know it's not going to be easy. It's not easy for me as a pastor either. In the past two years, I have seen so many people that I love drift away for no real reason. Other than life has just been weird since we were thrust into a global pandemic and everything just feels different now, but not in a good way. Our services are lower attended. It's hard to find volunteers for our teams. Our discipleship groups are smaller. But do you know what? Let me tell you something about the Bible. Let me tell you something you may not know. When Israel left Egypt, they were 600,000 strong. And no doubt, they probably grew when they settled into their own land. But when they return from exile, Ezra tells us how many are left it's under 50,000. It's under 50,000. Why does God choose to prune his people so drastically like this at certain moments in history? I don't fully know, but I know that he loves us you look to the cross, and you know that. We know that he loves us, that he is gracious and, and good, and I know that we should be thankful to be among those who are left and to have the opportunity to seek him and renew our commitment to him if we need to do that. When I had COVID last month, I was watching the Lord of the Rings movies because I'm, I can be a nerd sometimes. It's okay. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. I've really liked Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit since I was a kid. I read the books, and... Um, Anyway, I learned later in life that Tolkien was a believer and who put a lot of Christian imagery into his writing. But anyway, they're in the story, they're on their way. They're on this rigorous journey where they're being pursued by enemies at every turn who want to stop them from completing the mission that they have to destroy the ring of power. And in a moment of exhaustion and despair for how difficult it already is and how much more difficult they know it's going to be, the main character, Frodo, he, he's, he says this of the task at hand. He said, I, I wish it need not have happened in my time. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf, who is somewhat of a Christ figure in the story, says, so do I. So do I. And so, too, so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what we'll do with the time that's been given us. Isaac, what will we do with the time that's been given to us? What will we do with the time that's been given to us? Will we sit back and bemoan the fact that we're not living in the great world of 2019 anymore? Will we lose track of our mission by looking backwards longingly in idle nostalgia? Or will we consider what the Lord may be trying to teach us? What he might be trying to teach each of us individually and what he may be trying to teach all of us corporately as his church so that we might repent where necessary and renew our commitment to him. Time and again in Scripture, we'll see what we see in Nehemiah. This is the final point today. Following repentance, God mercifully gives his people the opportunity to rebuild with the hope of a better future. In Deuteronomy, Moses actually predicts many generations in advance that Israel will turn away from God and experience a season of great hardship through exile. <laughs> but listen to how he ends that prophecy. In Deuteronomy 4, 29-31, He says, but from there, that is from exile, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. We're going to see this. We're going to, sing this. We're going to see this ring true in Nehemiah. That faithless as we may be at times, God always remains faithful to us. And he keeps his promises to us, even when we've all but forgotten them. He continues to hold out the opportunity to rebuild what has been lost with the hope of a better future. You may notice in your notes, I put quotations around better, and asterisk after future. And that's because we'll also see in Nehemiah that when God allows his people to rebuild, it doesn't always mean bigger and more impressive, and the same is true for us as His church. When we begin to rebuild our lives around God's purposes after a time of hardship or our, our sin has been exposed and we've needed to repent, we may not always go right back to what was. Actually, most of the time, we probably won't go right back to what was or have something that is visibly better. But that's because God is not concerned with the outward appearance. He's concerned with the heart. Better to God means more faithful and more fruitful. And as hard as it is for us to understand, more genuine faith and increased fruit does not always mean externally bigger and more extravagant. And the reason that's okay is because our kingdom is not of this world. The things we're after are largely coming to us in the future. And that asterisk right there means not the future like next week, but eternity future. When Christ returns, it's then that we're going to be able to truly see the impact of our faith and the full measure of our fruitfulness. All right. I know I've gone long, but that's because I had to explain the whole Old Testament in one sermon. I hope you'll cut me some slack on that. (laughs) I'll just leave you with this. Though Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the Persian king, and thus he is committed to that earthly kingdom in a sense, what we see immediately in chapter 1 is that Nehemiah still remains incredibly passionate about the kingdom of God. And thus, when he heard the shameful state of Jerusalem that it was in, he, he sat down and he responded with an extended season of tearful prayer, a sample of which will be the content of next week's message. But I love what commentator James Hamilton says as we get ready to move into studying Nehemiah's prayer. He says, If we love God, and the advance of his glory, we will feel deep sorrow when the advance of the gospel is halted. And we will be disciplined and we will be diligent to fast and pray. And so I ask you today to consider do you love God in the advance of his glory? Do you feel a deep sorrow? the advance of the gospel has been halted in our time as many churches just like ours all across the country and the world have been have dwindled and they've struggled to even meet regularly and if so what will your response be what will your response be do you want to repent or necessary and rebuild Do you? I do. I know I do. And I believe that by God's grace, he will allow us to. But first, like Nehemiah, we need to fast and pray. We'll talk about that next week. Father, God, thank you for your word. I am blown away. By how incredibly relevant, how strikingly and piercingly relevant your word continues to be. And not even just the New Testament, God, the Old Testament. God, where we often brush off and don't dig, God, if we were to dig, we would find gold. We would find that the struggles, the difficulties, the sins, all of the things that we are wrestling with, God, they're not uncommon to man, that we can find help there. We can find healing there if we'll dig into your word and if we'll do it together in community and seek you afresh. We love you, God. Pray that you'd continue to bless this time that we're spending in Nehemiah. In Jesus' name we pray.